In lieu of today's episode where we're diving into reproductive health and wellness, and given the current political climate, we absolutely need to talk about abortion. Abortion access is a human right. And in a world where every day women are being raped, physically abused, and subjected to incest, abortion must remain legal. In a world where many are poverty-stricken, don't have health insurance, and don't have paid maternity or paternity leave, abortion must remain legal. In a country where we have the highest maternal death rate of any westernized country, abortion must remain legal. Abortion must remain legal, period. I was inspired by Busy Phillips' post and her movement, hashtag, you know me. In regards to abortion, we often hear from the pro-life crowd as they are very loud and very aggressive. And most women feel ashamed and scared to come forward and to talk about their abortion stories. There are one in four women that have abortions. Our stories are ours and we don't need to be ashamed about them. I want to be clear with regards to my abortion stories. I'm not ashamed. I feel sad that I was in the situation that I was in, but I don't regret my decisions. I had two abortions when I was a teenager addicted to opiates. I wasn't having regular periods. I was in unhealthy relationships and I had a DNC at six weeks and I took the pill at four weeks and had a, you know, termination at home. These weren't easy decisions to make, despite the fact that, you know, looking at my outside circumstances, um, you know, I was being pressured by many to just go forward with, with having a termination. I still felt, like I said, really sad about being in, in that position, but I was not ready to be a mom and I was in no condition to be pregnant. Fast forward to my life in sobriety. I'm married. I have children, a child, excuse me. I have a child at this point and in between my pregnancies with um, Harper and Dakota, I ended up having a loss and an ectopic pregnancy. And those were really painful things to deal with. And then I got pregnant with Dakota and I got the gut wrenching news at 10 weeks that my blood test came back positive for a very rare and life threatening diagnosis, um, of, you know, trisomy 13, which is often, you know, means the child is not compatible. The fetus is not compatible with life. I decided that I wanted to move forward at 13 or 14 weeks to have a CVS test. A CVS test is the next layer of testing that one would do. They go in through your vagina and through your cervix and they collect a sample from your placenta. 
and that came back positive. My heart broke and I was faced with a really challenging decision to continue with the pregnancy or to have an abortion. Even my doctor at that point was encouraging me to have an abortion if I ever wanted to go forward and have another pregnancy and have a second child. But I decided because the geneticist told me that my fetus actually at the time looked healthy on an ultrasound and did not look like a trisomy 13 baby that I would move forward with having an amnio. I just want people to know the privilege that comes with making that decision to move forward um, despite having a diagnosis like this. I had access to full-time childcare for the months that I would end up staying home on bed rest or being in the hospital on bed rest. I had amazing health insurance. I had a husband who was able to provide for us. We had a stable living situation. I was in a healthy relationship with my partner. I had all of the things conducive to, um, you know, having, having this option. Many, many women do not. So I went forward and, um, you know, the geneticist said that there might be a very rare condition that Dakota had where, um, her placenta had different DNA than, than she did. And that ended up being the case. However, I didn't find that out until well into my second trimester past to 20 weeks pregnant. I decided with Evan that should my health or life become at risk that I would have a late-term abortion. I think it's really important to talk about this because often women who have late-term abortions are villainized as, you know, baby killers or just one day they decided that they didn't want to be pregnant anymore and that couldn't be further from the truth. Late-term abortions happen in less than 1% or about 1% of those cases. So I just felt a calling to share my story with you guys. And I'm doing this for all of the women out there who maybe feel too scared or too ashamed to share their experience. I'm absolutely honored to have my dear friend Robin Poole on today's episode Robin is an incredible midwife that I've had the honor and privilege of attending several births with now as a doula. This episode talks a lot about birth, about reproductive health care, about informed consent, about abortion, and about circumcision. If you've been paying attention to the news or Instagram or Twitter or any social media for that matter, matter then you know that once again, there is an attempt to overturn Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade is the protection of women and their right to choose if they want to be pregnant or not. 
Right now, there are people on both sides of the aisle who are attempting to ban abortion. And this is something that I'm trying to not be very emotional about. It's something that I feel really passionate about. And it's something that I believe that everybody needs to be informed about, whether you're a male or female, because it's not just women who have abortions. It's men too. Um, this isn't just a religious issue. In 2014, the majority of people who had abortions identified as religious. And this is a war against women and their bodies. An example of that would be in Alabama, where they've already signed legislation to ban abortion. They carved, they put a carve out in that bill for IVF, meaning that they don't care about embryos that are lost. An Alabama sen senator said, an egg in the lab doesn't apply. It's not a woman. She's not pregnant. If that doesn't sum it up for you guys, I don't know what will. The bottom line is, in my opinion, if we're going to ban abortion before we ban assault rifles, you cannot call yourself pro-life. So many women in this world who have abortions and who don't regret them but still feel really sad about them. There are so many different spectrums of, of women who end up having to make this gut-wrenching and very challenging decision. And the best way I believe to break down the stigma and to heal collectively is to talk about it. Hey, it's Alexis Haynes, and this is my podcast, Recovering from Reality. So excited to have my girl Robin Poole here with Push Midwifery. Hi. I absolutely adore Robin because you are not only just a badass midwife, but you're like a real straight shooter. Like you kind of tell it how it is. You're not going to like sugarcoat shit. And I love that about you. It's like my favorite, favorite thing. I met Robin initially when I was pregnant with my second daughter and I reached out to her and I said, you know what? I really want to have a V-back. I had uh, I was a home birth transfer cesarean because of Frank breach. Um, it was not an emergency, even though it was treated as such, um, which is really unfortunate. And we're definitely going to dive into that. And um, I wanted to know my options. And unfortunately, I ended up having a more high risk pregnancy. And I ended up reaching out to Robin again. And she recommended me this amazing OB in the Caneo Valley area who I ended up choosing as my OB who delivered um, my second, which was an awesome VBAC. If you don't know what a VBAC is, it's a vaginal birth after C-section. And so I um, connected with Robin and then we've had a couple of births together now. And, um, and then here we are. I wanted to have her on the podcast because as you guys know, I am super, super passionate about 
making informed decisions and really knowing our rights and um, what options we have when we embark into the journey of motherhood or really now I see Robin for my annual pap smears, um, female reproductive health care. Can you tell me the, the difference between a licensed midwife and a mm-hmm. nurse midwife? I can. So there are two types of midwives in our state. In California, there are what's known as a certified nurse midwife, which is a CNM, and a licensed midwife with the initials LM. Um, nurse midwives get their RNs first, and then they do additional education in midwifery. Yeah. Um, and they typically work in hospitals. There are a couple, um, s- several hospitals um, that use midwives. Not enough in our area, but in most areas of the country, um, hospitals use nurse midwives. Licensed midwives um, do not work in hospitals. We tend to do home births or we work or own a birth center, which is what I have. Um, And our education is slightly different. One is definitely geared more toward the medical model, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of you know, I think where you would say those are the ones that work in hospitals and licensed midwives, our education is really focused solely um, on women, women's bodies and pregnancy and healthcare um, and newborns as well. A lot of licensed midwives also become IBCLCs mm-hmm. um, and uh, in some areas of the country, um, there are licensed midwives that have hospital privileges, not many, um, but it kind of depends on if you want to um, be part of the medical model at all. And most licensed midwives choose to not no. be. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's kind of the difference here. California is a license mandated state. That means that you've got to have a license in order to be a midwife. Most people, especially in the medical field, tend to lump us into, you know, being unskilled and that the midwifery model of care is based on informed consent. Mm-hmm. And that does not exist in hospital-based obstetrics. Which is why we have a C-section rate of over 30% Correct. and a rising and the highest of any westernized country maternal mortality rate, which is just... Right. Obstetrics is really a one-size-fits-all model. Yeah. Um, and they're trained surgeons. They're not correct. midwives. Correct. They're not trained usually in like normal, typical birth that doesn't include drugs or intervention. We're very different in our level of care and we're different in what our specialties are. Mm -hmm. Um, First and foremost, um, licensed midwives specialize in low-risk care. So in order to be um, a candidate for an out-of-hospital birth, we want to make sure that you're low-risk but also that your baby's low-risk. So we do follow what's known as the standard of care. And the standard of care simply means what you would get with an OB. Mm -hmm. So um, we follow the same obstetrical schedule. We offer the same testings, blood tests, ultrasounds, screenings um, that a woman may want for various reasons. Um, But mainly we find that people that are interested in this model want to retain autonomy and they want to retain the decision making that comes with what is offered and what occurs during pregnancy and birth and of course after a lot of people aren't aware of hospital procedures Mm -hmm. so i've attended many births with robin and usually at a hospital depending on your hospital after 12 or 24 hours with your water broken they're going to start pushing for a c-section Um, or to really speed things up with a lot of Pitocin and different interventions. Midwives actually give you IVs. They can give you IV antibiotics. They can provide a lot of the same things that you get in hospital. Um, And so 
you know, but at your home or in a birth center. And mainly what we're seeing is just that what, what has become um, a routine cascade of interventions, most of which should only be offered as needed mm-hmm. um, and now being offered routinely. Yes. So, for example, if we're doing an induction in a hospital and somebody starts with, uh, you know, Pitocin, um, it's very um, expected that following up with that will be an epidural. An epidural. Um, and once yeah. you get that, as well as the Pitocin, you're obviously now you're kind of strapped to your bed with your monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, some hospitals, you know, have wireless monitoring, et cetera, that allow you to walk around. Um, and very few, though, have walking epidurals where correct. you can't really walk, but you can at least stand up. Correct. Most hospitals, because they have to have so many anesthesiologists on mm-hmm. board to really monitor you and mm-hmm. you have to have a nurse in the room so you don't fall and yada, yada. They have all of these protocols. So if you once you get the epidural, that's it. You're in your bed. Um, in most hospital situations. Yeah, it's very hard to kind of navigate those um, those interventions, mainly because no one's really exactly sure what's needed. There's not a lot of education when you're with an OB. If you go to the hospital and you say, you know, I don't want IV antibiotics, I don't want an IV. You're going to start having um, problems. Correct. And, you know, how I relate it to my patients is I say, look, it, it's just... If you find yourself wanting a home birth in the hospital, you're not going to get that. And why bother to fight? It, you know, it's like fighting upstream, mm-hmm. right? While you're in labor, which is never a good idea. Every woman who's in labor is in one of the most vulnerable states of her life. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very difficult to advocate for yourself when you're in that state. Yeah. Um, and her partner, that is with her, is also in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Um, also feeling very vulnerable, feeling as though um, his or her partner is um, is in a situation where they just want everything to be okay. Yeah. And so a lot of people um, don't feel that they have an advocate. They don't really know what's right, what's not right, if something really is needed. Cue doulas. Correct. That's why we're here. Cue doulas. And while yes. um, when I became a doula, I was like, I'm going to do all of these out-of-hospital births, and it's going to be magical. And while those are magical... I get my work, my best work. I walk away from my best births when they're hospital births because a lot of the times nurses have four or five or six patients at a time and they're running room to room and they're just doing things really quick. Like I'll catch midwife or nurses that run in and just start prepping the bed for a vaginal exam without actually like explaining like, hey, we're going to do a vaginal exam right now and this is why we're doing it. And then you also have the student of the nurse that comes in and wants to do the double check and I'm putting that in quotes because it's they're learning and so they'll have the nurse do the check first, which is really painful when you're in labor in general. And then you're going to go in and do a second one. And so as a doula, you can say, wait, let's refer back to our birth plan and I'll look to dad or look to mom and just, it's nice to have a person there that says, pause. What do we want? What is this check for? Why are we doing this? Why do we need this right now? And then, you know, why do you need to do a second check? And then they'll explain it. And that is informed consent. Correct. Right there. And most women aren't getting it. No, it does. I kind of say it doesn't really exist. I also just want to say too, I don't think it's, 
I don't think it's always intentional. I don't think that people are viewing it that way. I think this goes back to what occurs in medical school and how these people are taught. I think most people that go to med school um, want to do amazing work, Um, but they have a different viewpoint. They have different, they have a completely different lens that they're looking through. Yes. Um, And midwifery care, which is um, for women. And what we're doing is we're supporting all of that woman. Um, whatever, you know, women come into midwifery care for various reasons. Quick break from today's episode to talk to you guys about Aloe House Recovery Centers. I mean, I'm a little bit biased, obviously, because my husband owns this recovery center and I've been with him from day one, from back in the day when we were just a little sober living to where we're at now, a full-fledged treatment center offering our clients detox, inpatient, outpatient, sober living, all levels of care. And I am just so grateful for their support and love of the Recovering From Reality podcast. We have such similar messages at Aloe. We treat our our clients with compassion instead of control and on an individual basis. We do not believe that there's a one-size-fits-all approach for every single person that is entering onto their journey of recovery. Um, And I'm just so blessed and so fortunate to work there as a counselor and to, um, you know, walk hand in hand with the amazing women that come through our treatment center. Um, We do treat men too, but I I'm so lucky that I get to do women's groups and I absolutely love them. So again, I'm just so grateful for their support. If you or a loved one needs help getting sober, please reach out to us. It's com. Again, that's com. Um, and sometimes it's because they've had a bad hospital experience. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's because of abuse. Yeah, sometimes, that was me. <laughs> right. And sometimes yeah. these women... Um, may not even really in their heart care about being out of the hospital. What they care about is a connection. What Mm -hmm. they care about is care. And midwifery is a very connected sense of care. It's what kind of inspired me to be a midwife is the relationship that I had with my own midwives. Um, And recognizing that I felt very much part of what was happening, but also I felt very nurtured and cared for. Yes, which Um, is almost impossible when you go into your OB for 10 or 15 minutes mm -hmm. versus sitting down with your midwife for 45 to an hour and a half with each prenatal appointment. Right. And that was a huge shift for me with my first, you know, model, my first pregnancy where I had that midwifery model versus just feeling like I'm part of the machine with my second. And mm-hmm. while I understand that I needed those doctors for my baby and for my pregnancy, um, even being in the hospital, I really wanted to have a, um, I didn't want a bunch of people because I was a sexual assault survivor. I didn't want the whole SWAT team. I call them the SWAT team when you're giving birth <laughs> in the hospital. It's like two nurses and the anesthesiologist and the baby care team and the doctor. And I just really, I was, I kept requesting like, please, everybody just leave. I don't need 15 people staring at my vagina right now while Mm -hmm. I'm like being like something forcefully coming out of me as somebody who's survived rape. You know, it's very traumatizing Mm -hmm. for someone who's been through that. And that's why when I was doing my doula training, the woman who trained me, Anna Paula, who I'm, I just love her over at Beanie Birth. She said, when a woman ops and wants a c-section right away there's always a reason whether she's a sexual assault survivor Mm -hmm. or she's afraid Mm -hmm. of 
of labor or mm-hmm. the things that she's been told, there's always a reason. And mm-hmm. so that's another reason why I love being a doula and being in this spectrum is because we can break down those walls and we can address the fears and the trauma and kind of take it head on. Mm-hmm we support all aspects of birth. What what we're actually supporting is her autonomy and, mm-hmm. and her right. And if a woman wants a scheduled cesarean, um, then she should get one. Yeah. If a woman wants a hospital birth with every intervention possible, then that's what she should get. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, they're requesting those things because that's how that's what they need in order to yeah, feel safe. safe. And the yeah. safety factor um, plays a really big part yeah. in what we do. So we find that most women, even when their births do not go the way that they want, um, under the care of a midwife, um, that they recover a little bit better emotionally simply yeah. because they've had um, they've had things explained to them. They've had a, mm-hmm. a connection with somebody yeah. um, that we've built, you know, probably for the majority of their right. Mm-hmm. So the first birth was a transfer after almost two days of labor that ended in a cesarean. Yes. That I walked away from that, and obviously. Um, I don't want to tell this person's story Mm -hmm. because it is their story and their perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, But I walked away from that going, wow, that was informed every single step of the way. She was informed about her choices and why we were doing this. And at the end of the day, when it came down to making that choice about having a C-section or not, she made that decision. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, wow, had, had the team, had you and I, not been there, this would not have gone this way at all. Mm-hmm. And so that that was huge for me. And then the second one was, you know, the mom really wanted to be in the water and she wanted to deliver in the water, but baby had his little hand over his face mm-hmm. and he was not up for that mm-hmm. at that moment. It was not an option. And um, But again, even in those moments where it is, transition which is seven to ten centimeters and things kind of perk up a bit and get a little bit wild at times and we're figuring out how we're actually going to get this baby out um she was informed and we ended up um laboring and pushing on the bed and she needed an episiotomy Mm -hmm. and what i love about midwives is that you know many doctors just do episiotomies because they want to do episiotomies because they believe that's the easiest way to get baby out. I mean, I can't tell you how many moms were like, my doctor told me it's easier to get cut than to rip. And I'm like, that is just not the case. But there is absolutely a time where episiotomies are needed. Mm -hmm. And in this situation, it was because he was not going to come out with his little hand over his face with that one in that moment, you know? So most of the time, you know, everything at one time can be necessary, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Inductions are necessary. Um, cesareans are necessary. Uh, the Pitocin is necessary. Mm-hmm. Epidurals are necessary. Um, and that, but then we go back to, again, what has become a normal routine intervention instead of being an as-needed one. And that's where 
you run your risk of being in a hospital. Yeah. Is it unless you're somebody who knows and unless you're somebody who's willing to kind of be prepared to fight that system. Yeah. Um, also, people, a lot of people don't know that a hospital itself plays a huge role in, in your what, outcome, in what your outcome yeah. will be and what kind of care, whether they, you know, model themselves as a baby friendly hospital, whether they have a really strong support in breastfeeding. Certain hospitals don't allow VBACs. I know. And so when you're living in an area and you're at a hospital that doesn't allow for a woman to have that choice, you remove that choice from her, Yeah. Um, which tells me that that hospital isn't looking out for the best interest of yes. her. That they're um, just routine, routine, routine. Th- right. And this is. Correct. This is how you're going to come in and birth here. Correct. So if yeah. you're not a woman who knows that that's the deal, if you're not a woman that knows that that hospital has a higher cesarean rate versus another, um, you know, Ventura County, which is where we live, um, is not VBAC friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a difference between VBAC friendly and, and VBAC tolerant. supportive and VBAC tolerant. Yes. And those are things when people find out, oh, a hospital is now yeah. offering VBACs. That's really great. That doesn't necessarily mean yeah. what we think it means. Are they actually really supportive? Are they going to allow you to labor in a way that's conducive towards a VBAC versus towards another cesarean? VBAC. Correct. Yes. Right. You know, one of the phrases that we hear most often is, I just didn't know, mm-hmm. or if I would have known. Yeah. Um, and maybe they found out later. Maybe they started investigating yeah. later. Or they talked to friends, or they started looking into other options. Yeah. Um, so a lot of that, you know, a lot of what we hear is, you know, this was my story, and I'm not sure if I needed this, or I'm not sure mm-hmm. if I needed that, or I didn't know that that could be the outcome. Yeah. Um, because we deal with unexpected outcomes too. I mean, that's what I have to tell a lot of people is that, you know, I can't guarantee you that you're going to get this magical birth. Yeah. I can't guarantee you that you're going to love labor. Yeah. Um, but my midwives had an 8% transfer rate, okay? And I was willing to take that risk because I knew that my chance of having a hospital cesarean was 30%. As we're talking about VBACs, which again is vaginal birth after cesarean, um, some woman messaged me and said, hoping to have a VBAC for my second birth coming up soon. What are your thoughts on how to advocate? Well, it starts from day one of your pregnancy. Who is your provider? Are you going to... um, are you going to ICANN meetings? Are you look, find, trying to find providers that um, are uh, VBAC friendly, not just VBAC tolerant? Mm-hmm. And the questions that you would ask are, what is your C-section rate? What is your VBAC rate? How long will you let me go in my pregnancy, right? Your estimated due date is just that. It's an estimate. We never can pinpoint the exact day unless you've done IVF that you that you conceived. So you could be 38 or you could be 39. You don't really know the exact timing. Um, so, you know, the normal due date range is 38 to 42 weeks. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to let me go to 42 weeks? And I think most providers are going to tell you no. no. Most people, what we're seeing now is that most hospitals, most obstetricians want babies out by 41 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, um, hell, we're arguing right now the safest time to have a induction is 39 weeks now, not even at your due date. They're correct. saying that the, that you should be induced at 39 weeks, which is, yeah, you're eye rolling and so am I because it's absolutely absurd because mm-hmm. we know that there's a spectrum of normal in, in birth and we're, in pregnancy. We're taking everything 
as everyone across the board. Yeah. And, you know, our cycles are not the same. Mm-hmm. Some women have shorter cycles than others. Some people have longer cycles than others. And we absolutely know that a day can make a such huge a difference, difference when There's it comes to... There's a huge to difference between 36 and 6. Correct. And 37. Correct. Even when it comes it to a baby. Way, right? It is a right. huge difference. Correct. Um, So how to have a VBAC? Well, first and foremost, you want to educate yourself on VBAC, what the risks are. That also needs to come into play when people come and talk to me about VBAC and the safety. Um, We do talk about what is the worst possible thing that can happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of it, you know, it's important to talk about those things as well as it is all the great things about birth. Mm -hmm. Um, But finding... And the risks of a repeat C-section. The risk of a repeat C-section. It pisses me off how when you go and see a VBAC doctor, they make you sign this VBAC consent form and it lists the risks of a VBAC, which are pretty close to a first time vaginal birth. They're right. not that far off, maybe by a percentage point or two in most cases right. versus the risk of C-section after mm-hmm. C-section after mm-hmm. C-section and your risks of placenta um, issues and bleeding out mm-hmm. and hysterectomy and mm-hmm. all of these things. And so they don't advise you of those risks. No, but you also want to look at what hospital you're looking at, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's sort of just like, well, who are the doctors that your friends know? And believe it or not, one of the best things that a woman can do when it comes to getting opinions and names for obstetrical care and midwifery care is social media. Yes. Um, there are f- Facebook groups and Instagram groups all over um, for every type of birth um, or mommy group imaginable. Midwives are always open to conversations. Not mm-hmm. everybody who comes and meets with me um, hires me. Yeah. And they don't, um, they, sometimes they, you know, decide that another midwife is a better fit. Sometimes they kind of decide after hearing everything that they still want a hospital birth. Yeah. And so one of the best things that I can do is to give them, um, some suggestions on where they can go to get the best outcome. Um, yeah. So we do utilize all the different hospitals and all the different doctors at various hospitals. Yeah. Um, and we all kind of have our own list of if this occurs in a birth, where do we take her to get mm-hmm. the best outcome? So yeah. if I think that I that we can get a baby out with forceps, we might go to a different hospital yes. than I would normally. Yeah. Or if somebody is having a VBAC and I think that um, she doesn't, that this, that this, could still be a successful vaginal birth, but with some interventions, I might not take her to one hospital, yeah. but we might go 30 minutes away to go to another. Yes. Um, and so you have to have somebody kind of willing to, you know, not only be able to manage that and navigate that, but somebody who has that knowledge. Absolutely. Certain times there's situations that are just out of everyone's control. And even if you're having a birth center birth or a hospital birth, you may need to transfer to the hospital. And so a transfer rate is the rate at which that specific midwife transfers their patients to a hospital. The next thing that I want to talk about that somebody brought up, and this is something that really drives me nuts, is, um, oh, my doctor said that I needed two things, and I want you to address both of these. My doctor said I needed a C-section because I'm having a big baby, which is, I mean, I hear that, Every day. Mm. And my dog, oh my God, my baby would have died because the cord was around the neck mm-hmm. um, had I not had a C-section. 
And um, just a little quick anatomy lesson here. So your baby is attached via umbilical cord to a placenta that is sustaining that baby's life and providing it with blood and nutrients and everything that it needs. And it is still connected to that placenta after it's born until the um, all the blood rushes back through the cord into the baby or the cord is clamped or cut. It's funny because the umbilical cord um, is is the emergent issue that comes up the most mm-hmm. for um, people when we start to talk about, you know, things that can happen, i.e. things that can go wrong in birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people say, well, you know, what about if something happens? And I always respond with, um, what if something happens? What does that look like for you? Um, and they always, the majority of the responses are, um, well, what if the cord's wrapped around the neck? You know, my sister, um, my niece would have the cord wrapped around her neck and they had to have an emergency C-section. Um, that's another term that we hear quite often, um, emergency C-section versus unplanned C-section. Mm-hmm. And not all cesareans um, that are unexpected are emergency. They're simply unplanned and unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, an emergency cesarean is a true emergency. Like you're um, being knocked out. There is no, you will not be awake. Correct. You will be under anesthesia. They will put you to sleep correct. and they will get that baby out in less than five minutes. But it has less a- than a minute. But Most it can times. have a very strong sense of being an emergency to that woman um, yes. who didn't see it coming, who wasn't expecting it, um, and who kind of feels as though, oh, wow, this is happening very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the time when we're reviewing somebody's past history and we're talking about their birth and what um, areas stand out the most for them, but also what might not have gone well for them um, and not and didn't end up in a way that they wanted. Um, and their cesarean story um, very often involves the cord. Um, it very often involves the, the, you know, the use of the word emergency. So for anybody that wants to um, talk about a VBAC with me, I always ask um, for records because that kind of helps me to see um, if the cesarean was what we would deem medically necessary mm-hmm. or not. So when somebody brings in um, records, we can kind of see what happened in that labor that may that they may not be aware yeah. of. Um, a really good example, if you want me to share it, yeah. um, I had a patient come in a couple years ago um, with she was pregnant with her second baby. And she was seeing a doctor who um, would not VBAC her. Um, her first baby, she was induced at 38 weeks for what we call macrosomia. That's a large baby, large mm-hmm. for dates baby. Um, and the induction started, I believe she stalled at eight centimeters um, and did have a cesarean. And the baby was a pretty good size. It was a 10 pounder at 38 weeks. And that is most definitely yep. um, rightfully so a macrosomic baby. Um, and so that was what she was, you know, why she ended up with a cesarean. So she thought, um, so fast forward, she wanted a VBAC. She came in, she sat down in my office and I was pretty surprised to hear that she had actually been seeing a physician, um, that I know really well. And she said, you know, this specific doctor won't VBAC me, which my immediate response was, well, I know that physician. And if he wouldn't do a VBAC, then I probably wouldn't either. Um, so I said, you know, what's, did he give you a reason for not doing it? And she said, well, he explained that in the particular um, hospital that I would be 
um, laboring at, they're not technically, you know, they're not very supportive of VBACs and that they require their physicians to be in the hospital the entire time that a VBAC woman is laboring, um, which isn't financially um, feasible for him to shut down his entire office to go sit in a hospital while somebody labors, just so that he can, in, in his mind, most likely section her again. Anyways, yeah. And um, what I explained to her was that I understood that. Um, it didn't make me happy, but I did explain to her that I was happy that he was honest with her and that he didn't sell her, you know, a bunch of crap that, you know, VBACs aren't safe and that she would never have a successful vaginal birth, et cetera. Um, so I said, oh, okay. You know, so technically he didn't say you shouldn't have one. He just said he wouldn't do be, one. Right. Yeah. He would not attend to her if that was her goal. Um, so I explained to her, uh, and you know, at her own right will, she had said, I've done a lot of research. I gained a lot of weight in my last pregnancy. I didn't eat, you know, very good food. I didn't take care of myself. And I obviously had a giant baby. Um, and I really want to do things differently this time and have a separate outcome. So she was really, um, well-versed and already came in very educated. So we talked a lot. We went over the risk. She understood all that. She said that she really wanted to move ahead. And I had said, well, let me get your medical records and see um, if there's anything else in there that would make this, um, you know, high risk or make this not a good choice for you. Um, so when I called the physician to get records, he was very surprised. He said, you know, are you insane? She had a giant baby at, you know, 38 weeks. And I said, well, obviously, we have to see if we can grow a smaller baby and we have to do things very yeah. differently. Um, but also, I want to see if there was any other reason why um, why she was sectioned. Um, and when I got the records, it was pretty much identical to what um, the patient had said with one very important aspect. Her baby was what we call OP, which is sunny side up. Oh, so not only was this a 10 pound yes. baby, this baby was facing up, yep. <clears throat> which can be, a you know, definitely really, a harder, yeah, labor, a, a harder labor and birth for a lot of women. Yeah. Some women can get a baby out that's facing up and some women mm -hmm. cannot. So that fact could not be ruled out. That wasn't fair. It wouldn't have been fair to not take that. Um, aspect of her baby yeah. and her pregnancy into consideration. So we talked about that. And I had said to um, that doctor, I said, listen, there's obviously some things I want to review in, in her records. But would you be willing to support me as well as her? I'd like to give her what we call a trial of labor. And if we are not, if we don't get the outcome that we want, can we come in for a cesarean with you? Mm -hmm. And for that, he said, absolutely. Awesome. So he supported us in the way that he felt right. It doesn't matter yeah. whether or not I think, you know, he's doing the best by the patient. Um, I'll just, you know, add that she ended up having a baby. I want to say she went to 41 weeks. Um, she did have a nine pounder and a, and a few ounce. It was a successful vaginal birth. Yes. Um, VBAC um, out of the hospital. So she was really happy. Yeah. But um, also I'll add that her husband, I want to say her husband's like six, four. Yeah. Um, and she's five, nine. So they, yeah. they weren't going to have a six pound baby. Yeah. Um, but there are things that we were able to talk about we were able to talk about the importance of what she ate and yeah. how um and how she took care of her body mm -hmm. um which again i wasn't expecting her to have a six pound baby but 
A yes. nine pounder at 41 weeks is very different than a 10 pounder at 38. Yes. And can we talk for a second about um, just growth scans? Because um, I, so with Harper, I gained 68 pounds. Whoa. Robin's face goes, whoa. Just because um, I can't imagine you. <laughs> me at almost yeah. 200 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm not a small girl I, myself right now, so. <laughs> I gave birth mm-hmm. to a six pound, eight ounce baby, mm-hmm. but I was told that I was measuring by 38 weeks, 41 weeks. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about growth scans and how um, they can be off. Well, one of the things that that makes me think of, let me ask you, <clears throat> is it sometimes a fluid level can be higher and that can mm-hmm. increase your abdominal measurement? And you had mentioned that, was it? with Harper that this was? Yeah, so okay, she was so breech. Harper didn't have, okay. She was okay. breech, mm-hmm. and um, she was, yeah, she ended up coming out, my water broke, um, had a very pretty quick labor, 12 and a half hours mm-hmm. um, of active labor. Sure. The beginning was a little bit, you yeah. know, slow or mm-hmm. whatever. My water had been broke for quite a while. And then um, we, I pushed her butt out at home, mm-hmm. and we transferred crowning which was not pleasant at all no um and that's another thing that really sucks is that my midwife had said you know i can't deliver a breech baby at home and when i got to the hospital there was no other option even though she was frank breech which is kind of the optimal breech position to deliver Mm -hmm. the doctor was just like "Mm, nope you're having a c-section um so i think that um there's a lot of fear tactics that doctors use which is really unfortunate. And I like to kind of drop the stigma a little bit and to really address those. And so we talked about, um, you know, big babies and, and we know that, that late, um, late in pregnancy, uh, uh, late in pregnancy growth scans can be really inaccurate Mm -hmm. and that you can measure totally different and still have a really small or sometimes a big baby. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the last thing that I, that I hear a lot is the cord, right? And so mm-hmm. there's a difference between a wrap around the neck, which um, as a midwife, how many of your babies have cord around the neck when you deliver? You know, I don't, I'm really bad at numbers. So um, I'm not the person to An ask estimate. as far as the percentage, but yeah. I would say a, a, a good fair amount are born with the cord wrapped around the neck and the majority of them we can just what we call reduce, which is just yeah. lift it right over the lift head. Lift it over the head. Um, and it really is a non non Issue. issue the cord is can be a suspected issue in labor when we're able to pinpoint at what point heart tones are going down mm-hmm. in labor then we have yeah. um, an identifying factor that there there's might be a, a cord knot. somewhere yeah there might um, be it could something. be a short cord it could yeah. be that the cords is wrapped being wrapped around the neck is isn't the issue it's when it's wrapped too tight, tight. it's when it obstructs mm-hmm. and a tight cord can obstruct a baby from coming down yep. um and a tight cord can be an absolute non-issue whatsoever. So, And um, for a good midwife like Robin is, you catch that before it becomes like a major issue mm-hmm. and we're rushing via ambulance to the hospital. It's kind of like, well, heart tones look a little iffy right now. Mm-hmm. And I also have been at a birth where that was the case towards the end. And we were going, what's going on? And that was the birth where baby's hand was over the head and right. there was some stress and mm-hmm. mom couldn't, you know, was having a hard time getting that baby to come down right. and... It was a long labor, and we were just kind of like, okay, are we transferring? Are we going? And that's when you made the episiotomy call, and we were able to have a successful out-of-hospital birth. Mm-hmm. And so a good midwife, and I think that a lot of people are like, oh, my gosh, if I deliver out of hospital and there's an emergency, what happens? And it's like, well, they have IVs. They have antibiotics. They 
usually catch way before we did with my breech baby that there's a breech baby or that there is an issue that's arising and right. and then you transfer and thank god like you said there's a place for epidurals there's a place for induction there's a place for cesareans right um it's just when we're doing these things we hope for complete informed consent correct um and we we strive for um you know autonomy and and making the best decision for the mom and for the baby, not for the convenience of the doctor or hospital. We all want an optimal outcome, right? We all want a healthy mom and a healthy baby. Um, We do forget sometimes that an optimal outcome isn't only um, a safe birth. It's Mm -hmm. also mom's mental state and her emotional state and that you don't have to sacrifice one to get the other. And kind of, you know, all of us, I think the majority of us have been witness to hearing the term, well, safe mom, safe baby, that's all that matters. Healthy baby, that's all all that matters. That's really not a fair statement because you can have both um just because your baby was born healthy doesn't mean that nothing else matters you can still have a tremendous sense um of loss and hurt and pain and trauma even Um, if you have a perfect vaginal birth correct with with everything that you wanted you don't know you really don't know as a first time even a second time mom or however many time mom you don't know the emotional um or the you don't know what to expect and you don't know what you're going into and birth is always a wild card and even if it goes exactly as you planned you'd never know what it's going to bring up for you correct and um you know i've i always say this and i and it's something that i believe is really true and that is if you want to change the world it starts with moms i really believe that if we want to change um every major issue in this world it begins with healthy moms that then raise healthy babies and healthy children and well-adjusted children we know statistically that that children who grow up in households with moms who are severely depressed can't get out of bed can't function have stress trauma whatever it is in postpartum anxiety disorder they have less than optimal outcomes and it does stress out the children it starts with having maternity leaves. It starts with helping moms get the care that they need. It starts with increasing breastfeeding rates. It starts with reducing C-sections. It starts with all of these things. Um, even, and I know this might be a little bit out there for you, Robin, but even when we're talking about, um, you know, cause me too is such a big thing right now. We're talking about consent and teaching our children about consent. And we're talking, we're talking about, um, teaching women what consent is that begins at birth and um you know i i personally don't believe in circumcision um i believe it's barbaric and outdated and that there aren't really any health um benefits to circumcision we can go on a whole rant about that however um i believe that it is so hypocritical to try to teach our sons about consent after we've circumcised them without theirs. And that's why I don't believe in circumcision. And I don't believe in even ear piercing because I don't believe in altering my children's bodies Mm -hmm. without them consenting to it. So how are we going to teach boys to consent to or to to treat women with respect and to know what consent is and isn't and to stop rape culture when we're altering their bodies circumcision comes up a lot um in my office because of course it's one of the things that we talk about um part of 
midwifery care too, is that we talk about what happens when baby's out, you know, so we talk about vaccines, we talk about vitamin um, K, vitamin K ointment, and we talk about um, if they're having a boy, what are their thoughts on circumcision? Um, And though we are seeing um, less and less people circumcise, um, it's still definitely happening. Um, And I think at a higher rate than most of us would like to see. Um, It's a tough call because again, as a midwife, I'm truly um, supportive of informed consent. Mm -hmm. And I am supportive of um, your choice. And it's difficult when you have a personal belief. It's like abortion, right? There are women that um, would never have an abortion themselves that don't feel that it's ethical um, yet are able to say, I, I however, um, don't want to take that option away from somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, circumcision is also not a black and white topic. It's an extremely intolerant. Uh, it has a lot of intolerance to yeah. a lot of people, meaning that circumcision is bad. If you do it, you're bad. And what people not my opinion, by the way, at all. I just want everybody to make really informed decisions. And my personal belief is that we cannot expect our sons. It's hypocritical of us Mm -hmm. to talk to our sons about consent and and consent with their partner, whether Mm -hmm. it's male or female, and what that is and why it's important. And and the the same thing for their bodies. I'm teaching my six-year-old right now. She came home with a bruise on her butt. Some kid punched her right in the butt. And I talked to her about consent and like what is okay and what is not okay. Mm -hmm. And when we're having that conversation after we've altered our children's body parts without their consent. I just have a hard time with that personally. But remember too, one of the things that that you know happens is that everything usually has to go through a process, mm-hmm. right? And remember, birth is a process. Pregnancy is a process. Yes. Change is a process. And when you have a male, in this case, maybe the father of what will be the baby that's going to be born. Um, And if this male was circumcised, which it's pretty safe to say that most of the men um, of childbearing age that I am seeing in my office have been circumcised, a lot of things we forget are generational, right? So um, there was a lot less nursing in the 70s and 80s because a lot, it wasn't stressed to women that it was the better way. It was right in the middle of the women's movement. But can I just say, Um, Robin, that like never once the argument of like, I want my son to look like daddy. Never once have I said, I want my daughter's vulvas to look like mine. It's just like such a weird thing to me. It's a weird thing. It's like, I would never compare my vulva to my kids and they're going to look different. Mine has hair. Theirs don't. I mean, but what's not weird is that the man sitting in front of you who was circumcised yes, at, at birth, true. who was who doesn't know any other way mm-hmm. other than himself. So when he looks in the mirror in the same way that the way that you look in the mirror, we identify with the breasts that are on our body. Yes. We identify with what we are and what we look like. And a penis really isn't talked about in the same way that a vagina is we can sit and have a conversation about it but it's usually intentional it's like okay let's let's you know this isn't a topic that that comes up in casual conversation so a male is not thinking about circumcision he's thinking about simply what he looks like Mm -hmm. so when you have to look at him and say you weren't born that way did you know that you weren't born that way? And that's that painful way? for some men. For, for my some husband, men, it's just yeah. a little surprising. For my husband, it, it was like, wow, I wish that didn't happen to me. And what would this 
be like? What would sex be like? What would this be like Have had I had a foreskin? Like, But some men simply say, I don't know anything else different. other than what I saw mm-hmm. in the locker room in high school. Yes. Okay. And now so, it's like 50-50, right? So we're, it's, we're the numbers are definitely closer. increasing. I like to say that we're joining the rest of you know the humane the society world. that doesn't. Yes. Because, of course, in most other countries, they don't, they don't circumcise. But I have to gently remind most women that it's not a flippant issue for them. Mm-hmm. And that... When we talk about change, what this that for the first time these men are hearing that to take a newborn baby and alter him, to alter his physical appearance, mm-hmm. which is unnecessary and painful, right? Yeah. They've never looked at it that way. Yeah. So when you're telling somebody for the first time, number one, you're not born like that, there's yeah. a pause there. It's like, oh, oh. right. Mm-hmm. Second, you have to slowly talk about the fact that there are reasons that are benefiting not circumcising and why. And sometimes the answer is simply, we did it back then because it's what you did, did yes. right? It was, we cannot ignore that there are- Just like slapping babies on the butt. Well, really sure. Hard. The, All these things We always that, forget yes. that there's something called the temperature of time, yes. right? It's sort of like, well, what was going on so true. back in a certain time? So when we address circumcision in our office and- Again, a lot of the time people will ask me personally, mm-hmm. um, I have a son, I have one son and my others are, are girls, but they say, you know, did you circumcise your son? Um, my first answer is that I don't discuss my son's, son's genitals, genitals with, with anyone. other people. Um, and yes. the reason for that is because if we're going to talk about body autonomy, yes. autonomy, I think that we should also remember that it's not my right to discuss my son's penis any more than it's my husband's Mm -hmm. right to talk about my vagina. Mm -hmm. Um, So I gently remind them that my son's autonomy is important Mm -hmm. for me and that I don't discuss my son's personal um, life. But um, I talk about the fact that this is a deep and and actually it's a decision that is much more... um, that's that's harder than just oh well if if you do it you are barbaric it's like look i understand that that's how the majority of population feels but if we don't consider that men too have their parts right as women it's very easy to to blame men Mm -hmm. for a lot of what um, what we feel is unfair. And I'm not saying that that doesn't have a role, but they've been who they are and have looked the way that they are for as long as they know. And they too are bringing a son into the world to raise, to be the best that he can be. And so in talking about having a son that isn't going to look like him, remember that that's all he thinks a penis looks like. Yes. And there's been, you know, a lot of unkindness around uncircumcised males for a long time. Mm-hmm. So to talk about removing that stigma from uncircumcised males, which we're starting to see more of, but not enough. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of it is just an education. So people are always going to respond better when they don't feel judged. Yes. And they're always going to respond better when they don't feel attacked. Yes. Um, so that's where we want to start is just education. And it's so important to get educated. And I think that you had said, you know, that this is an invasive and painful, often painful procedure. And mm-hmm. it is. Um, we've now shown studies that their brains are altered after they've had circumcision, that pain medication that's given is often not enough. And then we have to think about the days and possibly weeks that it takes to heal a circumcision. And those newborns are not given Tylenol every four hours round the clock 
for their cut. And so it's just, it's so important to make informed decisions and, and, um, and to go into it and then to feel confident in your choice. Like we said, you know, if you choose a C-section, you choose a C-section. I just want to make sure you know all of the risks involved with the C-section before you do it. Uh, If you choose an induction, if you're done being pregnant at 39 and five, okay, let's just talk about all the risks and make an informed decision. And the same thing is true for, for um, circumcision and for vitamin K. And there's definitely times like I was saying, that second baby who had a pretty big hematoma on his head needed vitamin K. And the mom was like, I don't want vitamin K, but he ended up needing vitamin K. Okay. So we have to, you know, there's, there's definitely places and we make Mm -hmm. informed decisions about those things. And then we, and also for me, you know, informed consent doesn't mean that they do what I think is right. Yes. There are times, and again, I know that there are, you know, providers that won't do births for women that are going to circumcise mm-hmm. or don't want to do oh, women wow. that don't breastfeed. Um, wow. And I don't find that to be yeah. a good model of informed consent. So mm-hmm. I do have patients in my office that make choices that are not ones that I would make yep. or that make choices that I don't think are great. Yep. Um, but my job and what I feel as of now is that my job is to support them in their choice my job is to not support them in the choice that they make that, that I think want. is best. Yes. And that is the difference is that when somebody really gets educated and says, I'm going to go ahead and and not take your advice. I'm going to go ahead and not take your recommendation. Um, but sometimes we've got to remember that they're not wrong. Yeah, They're not wrong and that they have a right to do things that other people um, may deem risky, that other people may deem um, dumb. and nuts and my advice to you is to own your decision and to be empowered by it Mm -hmm. and to just Mm -hmm. go for it because as moms I had so many opinions I would never do this I would never do that and then I became a mom and my thoughts on that changed I thought that I was gonna breastfeed until my kids weaned at four or whatever age and you know what because of my sexual abuse by the time they were one it freaked me the hell out and I was done and you know, judge me all you want, but I was, I was finished mm-hmm. and, and that's okay too. And you know what, by the time my baby was one and I was dealing with severe postpartum depression mm-hmm. and anxiety and felt like I was dying, I slept trained my fucking kid. Mm-hmm. And within <laughs> four nights, she was sleeping through the night and it greatly a improved. changed woman. <laughs> yeah, I am. I was a changed woman right. from a bed, co-sleeping, sure. constant nursing you know, machine to, well, there's a reason that the phrase, you know, you know, everything until Until you become become, a mom, right. Until you have kids. But you know, again, it's a matter of, of doing what you think is right and doing what feels right for you. Um, and you don't owe anybody an explanation for that. You don't. Thank you, Robin, so much for coming on. I just really appreciate it. And if you guys want to check out Robin, she's out here in the Caneo Valley. And, uh, you know, she's the push midwifery care. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. I want to try something new within our community. I am a huge fan of affirmations. It is something that I use in my life to keep me on track and to help my mental health too. I mean, hearing positive words throughout the day absolutely affects our overall well-being. Each week, we are going to set a new affirmation to help us on our path towards collective recovery. 
okay, so you guys are like affirmation Alexis. Okay, how do I actually apply that to my life? Well, it's really simple. Affirmations are things that I write down in my journal, that I stick on a post-it note up on my bathroom mirror, that I set a reminder in my phone to say to myself throughout the day, that I sometimes write on the inside of the palm of my hand. And it's a gentle reminder to get grounded, stay focused, and be present. This week's affirmation is, I'm at peace with who I am as a person. And so it is. 